Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. My name is Travis Shaddix. Thank you for joining me on, I think, maybe the first afternoon version of Turfgrass Epistemology. I'm not sure if I've done one at one o'clock, so it's a nice little change today. <clears throat> we've been going over thatch. The last, uh, what, three or four papers we've gone over has been about thatch. And as you've heard me say many times, I know almost nothing about thatch. So what, what I've been able to present to you is whatever is presented in the papers. I try my best to, to get the information accurate as I present these papers. But because I don't know anything about thatch, <laughs> um, and I wanted to talk about this paper today, I uh, reached out to the, the author and said, hey, can, we, you know, can you come on and help me understand exactly what you did? And um, so I reached out to Dr. Barrett, and Dr. Lee Barrett is able to join me today. Dr. Lee Barrett, how are you today? Doing very well, sir, and you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's uh, getting cold in Kentucky. I think we had the last three days in a row, there's been frost out here. So things are starting to slow down in the world of turf management up here in Kentucky. So I hope everybody- We had frost once this past year. In Naples? Well, I live in Fort Myers. So, in Fort Myers? Yeah. yeah. People don't realize that. If they've never been to Florida, they think South Florida and North Florida is all beaches and bikinis, but it does it's get like colder. 82 or 83. <laughs> <laughs> it did, my, uh, I, I had a technician. Um, it's, it's a disservice to call her a technician. She was much more than that over in Fort Lauderdale. And she, she's been on there, I think she was born down there. Um, and she remembers a time in Fort Lauderdale when it actually snowed in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know when that was, but she said, yes, there was a time it actually snowed in Fort Lauderdale. So it can happen, but it's extremely rare. Even Gainesville can, um, can get, I don't think I ever saw snow in Gainesville. I lived there for 16 years. I might've seen snow once there in Gainesville. Of course it frosts there all the time, but. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if I ever actually saw snow in Gainesville. Anyway, Lee, so for the, the you and I met for the first time, probably when 2005 or six or something like that, 20, almost 20 years ago, I think it was, you were at yeah, Edison. Probably. Yeah. I think yeah. you were at Edison and to give you <laughs> an idea of it, Lee's, um, magnanimous nature, I ran into a few people like yourself who are very friendly and open and helpful. I was doing some work uh, around the state of Florida and I, in Edison college, if you've never been there is in the Southwest side of Florida and there was, they had a small campus there and they had a, you had a one putting, you had two putting greens there, I think. And some couple oh, of, we actually had three. You had three. Okay. And I was doing some <laughs> freelance work and I called him up and said, Hey, you know, could I do maybe come down there and put a trial on? He said, sure. So I went in there and I think at the time, the first time we met, you were actually in class teaching. It was in the afternoon. I remember that. And I came in, I was like, Oh man, I, didn't mean to interrupt him. You know, I was thinking, I thought maybe he'd be upset. And you're like, Hey, Travis, you know, come up in front of the class and say a few words. You're very friendly. And I, th I thought I'd, you might be a little bit annoyed that I, you know, accidentally came in on your class and you were like, you know, problem, come and say a few words. I thought that was nice. Yeah. One time we had a, one of the most progressive turf programs in the world. Really? We had 125 students. Wow. And uh, we had club managers and <clears throat> superintendents and assistant superintendents and golf pros and people never worked on a golf course before. 
And uh, if you didn't have a job on a golf course, I got you one. Yeah. And, and uh, but p- politics at the college were such that, you know, I had a pretty big target on my back. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. When did that actually shut down? It, was, it wasn't very long <laughs> after that. 2009. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was two, two or three years after I went down there, it shut down. Um, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I've not, I've known you for almost 20 years now on and off at the various meetings and just crossing paths here and there around the state of Florida. But for those who may not know you, tell them a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. Well, I'm semi-retired at this point. <coughs> I'd, uh, you know, I went to, uh, Michigan state and did my master's degree with Paul Rieke. Did my PhD with uh, Joe Vargas, and then I kind of changed directions. Ended up taking a job with Jack Nicholas for a couple of years, and you know that was pretty cool while it lasted. He got upset and fired me one day, but everybody that's anybody's been fired by Jack Nicholas. So wait, 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 wait! You got <laughs> You can't just skip by that story. So, so Jack well, Nicholas himself got upset with you one day. Well, yeah, it was pretty funny, actually, because he had a beautiful home in a place called Lost Tree in North Palm Beach. And he had several putting greens. (coughs) And he had told the the guys that take care of his grounds for him that he was not happy with the condition of the Tiffdorf putting green that he had, and they should go out and verticut it five different directions, which is what they did. Mm. I took all the grass off it, (coughs) and they didn't kill it, but it sure looked bad. Mm. And I would travel, and then I would come back. (coughs) Excuse me. Part of my job was to uh, go over to his house and look after his putting green and his tennis court. Mm. And... So I, I got back from a couple of weeks of traveling and I walked in there, <coughs> excuse me. And I saw that putting green. I'm standing there looking at it and he sees me standing there looking at this green that has no grass on it now. Mm. And he comes walking out and says, what do you think? And I said, well, I talked to so-and-so and <coughs> they said that, you told them to verticut this five different directions, which is precisely what they did. You didn't dare do not do what he told you to do. Yeah. And I said, and I'll look at it. And I said, we abused this green. And I was just, I figured, you know, he was the golfer of the century, greatest golfer to ever live. I mean, why would you lie to the guy? Mm. And it turns out that my supervisor was a guy by the name of Ed Etchells had basically done just that, lied about it and said it was an irrigation problem. Oh. And then so I went back, well, Lee says it's this. And Ed's going, well, no, it's this. So I ended up getting let go. Oh, no. <laughs> which, was, which was in itself pretty devastating <coughs> to me at the time. But I just, I look at it as, you know, I got to have like a, after my PhD, I got to have a couple of years of uh, good real world experience 
with turf grass, yeah. which a lot of people don't get to do. Sure. I mean, I built golf courses and I work mostly in Hawaii hmm. and uh, Mexico and Western Canada, California, and was involved in building a number of golf courses. <coughs> so got to got to know people in the industry and and uh, you know got to do a lot of things people just never get a chance to do. Like for example, you know, I always thought that for me living in Florida has been the highest of highs and lowest of lows. And I've lost a couple of jobs. But you know, when I was with Nicholas, one of the highlights of my career is flying in the G5 uh, personal jet, uh, eating Dungeness crab fresh out of the bay in Vancouver mm. and watching Steve Martin videos yeah. with Jack Nicholas. That's pretty and good. It doesn't get better than that. Say, that's a pretty good choice of, of actors to watch. Yeah. <laughs> but then he, he did, I, don't, I don't think he knew what to make of me because I would, I would just be honest with him. Yeah. And because they, they told, they told me, you know, to just always be honest and always mm -hmm. say what you think. And I would do that. And, and I got in an argument with him riding around a site in Santa Fe with the governor of New Mexico in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so that probably didn't help my case either. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, someone has. You know, one and, and then I went to Edison College and I told him, you know, I wasn't interested in just, you know, being an instructor, but mm -hmm. they wanted to start a turf program, uh, you know, we could do that and I'd be all in. And for the first eight years, college was behind me mm -hmm. on that. And we ended up building a laboratory and we took about four acres and converted it into a golf course. We had three golf holes, <clears throat> eight different grasses, including a zoysia grass before it was fashionable. And, uh, and I did a lot of research out there uh, and research involving thatch, believe it or not. And then that kind of soured because the, the college was so, I don't want to say incompetent, but that's the word. They didn't know how many people were in the program. And uh, they said, well, there's only nine people in your program. And in reality, we had over 125 hmm. and uh you know so there was a big to-do in the newspaper about it and gcsaa got involved <coughs> but they closed up the program and now that golf course is a parking lot so that shows you where people's heads are you know yeah i mean it's it seems odd that I mean, if there's one location, I mean, maybe the East Coast, maybe Palm, West Palm Beach or something, something, you know, around the breakers, that area has a lot of golf. But I mean, for, well, we for, had 300 golf courses between Naples yeah. and Sarasota. Yeah. I had people coming from as far away as Venice, which is hmm. at least an hour and a half by car. And they would come two, three times a week. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, we had golf pros and club managers and, mm -hmm. and you know, we would, uh, um, I mean, we had a really good deal because I, I made a deal with Toro and they funded all of our equipment. We had uh, all the equipment that we needed. It was on consignment, so they would sell it, you know, on occasion and then, you know, bring in a brand new piece of equipment. Yeah. And, uh, 
you know, Billy Gamble, who, who runs Wesco Turf, he was instrumental in doing that. And I remember sitting down with a couple of his guys early on saying, this is what we're going to do. And they're going, yeah, right. And, but, <laughs> made it happen. But, you know, we made it happen. And we yeah. had a good deal. And we had a turf equipment mechanics program. And we had the equipment there. And, mm-hmm. and we had lots of seminars and um, a, lot of, a lot of people. And, uh, so you ran the Edison uh, turf program for several years, and then when it shut down, you did you go directly to the uh, saw producer or saw licensor at that point after that? <coughs> well, actually, I got hired by Florida Gulf Coast University. Oh, okay. Until somebody from Edison called him up and said, hey, you shouldn't hire this guy because he's a <laughs> troublemaker. <laughs> And so they rescinded their offer. Oh, okay. Which was just as well. And, yeah. But I did do some teaching. And I was an adjunct professor at FGCU. Okay. In the professional golf management program hmm. um, for five or six years. And, um, you know, I had a lot of fun with that. Taught a turf grass class. Took the golf pros out. Said to him, okay, what kind of grass is this? And they would look at me like, what does it matter? It's go, green well, grass. Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> you know you're, you're, you're staking your career and your life on a putting green. You should actually know yeah. what that grass is when you're playing with the members, when they ask you, what kind of grass is this? Do you think it might be more common today for those pros to know the differences in turf grass, at least species, than it was 20 years ago? Well, probably not. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I think they're more interested in management and, mm. and inventories and yeah. giving lessons. You think at the bare you minimum, know, they would know the difference between like a Bermuda green and a bent grass green, though? I think that's pretty standard, don't you think? I mean, well, you know, part of the problem with that was the PGA people who they, they constructed a booklet mm. to go along with this course. But, you know, in the booklet, they flat out said that the most popular putting green grass is velvet bent grass. Okay. And I'm going, well, maybe if you live in Connecticut, yeah, (laughs) but if you know, you get to Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan, Mm -hmm. you're just not going to see velvet bent grass growing anywhere. Yeah. And I thought it was important to teach the students about things like, well, okay, this is Tiff Eagle. This is champion. Mm -hmm. This is mini birdie. And this is Tiff dwarf. And, you know, this is TIFF Sport, and this is 419, so that they know these grasses. Sure, yeah. And, uh, um, but, you know, there was a certain amount of resistance to learning about the grasses because they did, most of them just kind of thought, well, this is just something we have to know for class. Oh. And uh, I would just say, mm-hmm. well, you know, uh, um, you, you, you get your Corvette, you get your nice house, and you want to keep your job or move to another job, maybe somebody asks you about turf grass because it's yeah. it's an integral part of what you do. Sure. And, yeah. And uh, you know, and 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 I, and I always gave what I thought were fair tests to these people because, and I, I did for all my students. Now I never forget. I gave one test where I ask a question, a real world question. You know. Well, okay, so you've gotten your dream job at golf club XYZ, didn't you? And you come in on your first day, and you drive up the drive, and you see a spray rig floating in the pond between number 10 tee and number 18 green. 
what do you do? And so there was a number of answers came back, but one sticks out of my mind. It's, this guy said, well, I would just start saying to myself over and over, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that was kind of, kind of fun. So you, uh, that, that wrapped up, but you did end up joining uh, Sod Licenser, which you worked for, for, I think you said at the beginning or right before we came yeah. around 10 years where you licensed various sod yeah. or turf species. Environmental turf. Yeah. You worked with, for them for a while. With a guy <coughs> named Wiley McCall. Okay. And he was, he was a, he was a good guy. Yeah. So you worked for them for 10 years or around that, around a decade. And then after, since then you've sort of taken a step down or not down, but just you sort of phased retirement, well, I, I guess. Yeah. And I just, I work for myself because I've done, <coughs> I've done a lot of trial work okay. for, uh, Bayer and, uh, Syngenta. Okay. Over the years. And I would have 18 or 20 trials going mm. on some summers. Okay. And so I made a lot of good money doing that. Okay. <laughs> and so, I, you know, worked at environmental turf and uh, at the same time. And I would, you know, be an adjunct mm. at FTCU. So for a while, I was really busy. I see. And then that just kind of got to be old. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a little older now. And, Standing out in the Florida sun, in the middle of the summer, spraying pesticides, just really wasn't getting it anymore. Yeah, that'll wear you down. That'll turn you old real quick. So now you're <laughs> more or less that. retired. You kind of do some freelance trials here and there, but for the most part, you 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 run your own show and pick up some projects here and there if you, if it interests yeah, I you. I work when I want to. Okay. <laughs> I uh, I just did an expert witness case in Pittsburgh this year. And uh, I'm not going to really discuss that, but yeah, um, I've done, uh, I think that's my seventh expert witness case. And it's kind of funny because the way I got to environmental turf is I did an expert witness case while I was at Edison hmm. involving the taking of part of a sod farm for a gas pipeline. Oh. And the sod farm was owned by this guy, Wiley McCall. Hmm. <laughs> and he said, the big enough part of the sod farm was going to contaminate the entire 300 acres. And I said, no, it isn't. Not if you take, you know, mitigation cautions. Yeah. And uh, so um, <coughs> push come to shove. And I think he, he ended up, they offered him $250,000. He ended up getting a million. Okay. But out of that whole thing, uh, he ended up hiring me hmm. because he liked the fact of what I had to say hmm. and, you know, how I conducted myself. And I was talking to him at lunch one day and he says to me, he goes, well, you know, you really screwed up on that. I go, well, how do you mean? And he says, well, you know, initially they were only going to give me a quarter million, but I talked him into a million dollars to settle this lawsuit. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, but I made 25 grand writing that report and then you hired me. And since you've hired me, you've paid me about $300,000. <laughs> yeah. I don't figure I'll come out too bad, you know, yeah. uh, on this whole thing. So that's a little bit about your past and your more, how you got to where you're at and somewhere along the lines, I guess in grad school, 
you you did some work with Thatch, and then a, even after Russell, you, you published a, at least two more papers on Thatch. Well, and, actually, uh, there's the uh, well, this initial paper, like I said, is my first paper. So, you know, it's not the greatest paper in the world. I mean, it conveys the idea. Yeah. Well, but then I, I wrote. Uh, you know, I did. I put modeling to Thatch. Yeah. And I've written at least two papers about modeling. Mm-hmm. And then Rock Gaswan, I co-authored a, a, a chapter in the last Turfgrass monograph mm. back in ten years ago. Okay. And that's that's kind of like one of my best papers. I wrote quite a bit in it. You know, and Rock wrote quite a bit on it. For those yeah. who don't know, Rock Gaswan, he's a is he he's about to to retire or be married or something. He's he's been at Nebraska for how many decades? Wow, he's but he's a I can't tell you for sure. He's been there forever. <laughs> yeah, he, and he, he's a he is a he is a a, a smart guy. Yeah, and uh, I've a, actually written several papers with Rock. Yeah, that's like saying the Pope is Catholic. You know, I mean, yeah. Rock, Rock, Rock is extremely intelligent See, and very wise. Rock and I went to grad school together. Though. Okay, we collaborated on a lot of stuff. Just mm. you know, in this paper that we're talking about. I can remember talking with him about doing the experiment mm. and he sort of explained the whole idea of factorial design mm-hmm. to me, even though I had statistics Yeah, and he goes, well, why don't you make this a factorial? I, I go, okay, sounds good. And he helped me with that. So well, uh, rock deserves some credit on this paper too. Okay, well, 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 we will give him all the credit he deserves for sure. He's, he's a good man. I, I heard a rumor that he's going to, he's either thinking about retiring. I don't know. He's, He's been around for a very, very long time and done a lot of good work. He has a lot of, uh, I guess you want to call it the pipeline of students that have come through his program that are then professors who then create grad students and so forth. He has a lot of oh, yeah. history and he's put out a lot of good students over the years. And yeah. um, and so he was involved with this, even though not an author, but you're saying he, he was he was involved. So let's give him some credit. Let, well, let's get into it. The um, I, we, We're going to start moving in for the audience that has been with me for the last couple of months. We're going to start moving in. We've talked about Thatchley. We've talked about kind of what it is. We showed some papers from the 60s and 70s that attempted to describe and um, explain a little bit why Thatch was um, so difficult to break down, where they started pulling out the the constituents of Thatch being primarily lignin and cellulose and things like that and trying to figure, you know, in the 60s, they knew there was a problem. They didn't know why it wasn't breaking down so much, and they started to kind of figure that out. And now we're going to move into the, the topics or the area of management of thatch we had one paper i think in there we talked about management but um we're gonna talk about management of that not thatch, not just um physical management of thatch but also at least the potential biochemical or bio biological management of thatch and your paper which was published in 90 let me just bring it up here is entitled kentucky bluegrass thatch characteristics following application of bioorganic materials it was published in Hort Science in 1990. So this is available for anybody listening to go download for free. Hort Science and all their papers at the ASHS, American Society of Horticultural Sciences, are all open access now. As of, I guess, four or five years ago, they opened them all up to open access. So you can go um, download this. Now, he's, Dr. Brent, you're being a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> humble here a little bit when it comes to the, the topic. It is a simple paper. It is your first paper. It's far better than my first paper. It's far better than my second or third papers. Let's be honest. I mean, you, you learn how to write as you as you get, you know, more experience. You learn how to get better at it and so forth. Well, and, you know, on a, on a side note, I don't mean to interrupt, but before I lose this thought, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I was so proud of this paper because 
This was back before you had computers. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it had to get typed out, or maybe it was on a 64K Commodore. I, I, I really don't remember. But I can, I can remember this is when they actually mailed you the journal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got the Heart Science Journal come in the mail, mm-hmm. and I, I was looking at my article, and I'm going, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> you created that I, it. that I eventually married, uh, I got up one morning, and she was having her usual standard bowl of Cheerios and milk. And what do you think she was using as a placemat? <laughs> it doesn't seem right. I mean, it soaked it with milk. It ruined it. And... <laughs> I should have never married her. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, it, that's what it, that's pretty common, though. Let's be honest. I mean, when you get out, you, you publish your paper, you write your dissertation or whatever, and you think it's going to change the world. Maybe 100 people read it in their life, and then they put it away. And that's one reason why this channel exists. And one reason I'm excited about continuing this channel is because papers like this that have been on the back burner, maybe we can bring them back to life and, you know, expose them to a newer audience that can appreciate and use the information that's in here. So, so sure. normally... I'll go through here and I'll read a little about the introduction, but with you here as the author, do you want to just, uh, if you, well, I'm asking you to go back 33 years. I don't know if you can remember everything, but just kind of set the stage um, of the introduction of the, of the paper. Like what, what was the, the background of the reason why you were investigating this and what was the, what were the objectives of the paper of the paper? Well, I had, I had in all fairness, Paul Rieke has the patience of the saint. Okay, Mm -hmm. because he really had to have some patience with me. I wasn't very grown up at the time. And and frankly, in some respects, I didn't really care about a lot. But uh, because I ended up talking my way into graduate school, I went through the turf program at MSU. And with the idea of becoming a superintendent, Mm -hmm. because all I ever worked on were golf courses. (coughs) And my old man had a four acre lawn when I was a kid. So all I ever did my whole life is cut grass and take care of it. And I got out of turf school, the two year program. And I decided I didn't want to get up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, to be at work at five. Mm-hmm. So I kept badgering Paul Rieke and badgering is a light term. I mean, I called that guy once a week. Mm. I said, can I get in? Can I get in? Well, they <clears throat> put me in on a provisional basis. And I passed the classes and stuff. And then he got me an assistantship (coughs) about halfway in. And the assistantship was funded by a guy by the name of Judd Ringer. And he made a product called um, Ringer's Lawn Restore. And this was one of the first bioorganic products (coughs) that was commercially available. And I remember sitting in the in the meeting talking to him and we said (coughs) that we would look at whether or not it in fact can or has the ability to reduce thatch thickness, which at the time there really wasn't any research on, I mean, a little bit, but nobody had been successful at it. (coughs) So this was tied to my assistantship funding. And, you know, we got uh, several, several bags of um, <coughs> Lawn Restore and a couple other Ringer products. And, you know, we began to uh, establish some plots. 
and I didn't know what I was doing. I'm, you know, Paul Ricky's going, well, yeah, just go do this. And he was real nice about it, but he's, yeah, just go do this. I didn't really know what I was doing at all. And then I thought, well, there was a spot near uh, the building at the Hancock Turfgrass Research Center, which at the time was only about four acres. Now it's like 35 acres or 50 acres or something. But there was a, a grass called Touchdown Kentucky Bluegrass that just had a really thick layer of thatch on it. And I thought, well, it'd be good to see, you know, if we can make something happen here. And so I'd been talking to Rock about it. And, you know, the idea was mine. And he helped with the statistics and experimental design. But I had had another class, and I won't talk about that. But one of the things that I'll never forget the professor said is sometimes you have to push the system to see what's going to happen. Yeah. to see if there's anything worth looking at. So I decided I was going to push this system and see if I could get something to happen over the course of a summer. Mm. So we put on extremely high rates of these materials, uh, upwards of uh, 8 pounds N to 32 pounds N per application four times over the summer. Okay. I mean, we this stuff to the grass hmm. and lo and behold we found a linear uh reduction in thatch thickness okay. between the rings. and so it all came about because people were kind of going yeah this probably isn't going to work and i just kind of thought well let's see if we can make it work first yeah because then you close back off and you can do other things mm -hmm. and you know, it was one of the greatest experiments I ever conducted because I can remember at the end of the summer, we took some samples and lo and behold, I mean, that thatch was just down to nothing. Okay. In a high rate. And um, so I was all excited, you know, I was telling the ringer people and they were looking at it. And, and I think Paul Ricci was actually kind of proud of, you know, what we did. Uh, because he didn't have a lot of input into it. He was just kind of going, yeah, well, you're being dangled off a fishing line here. You know, see what you can do. Yeah. And, uh, and I can remember telling some of the other professors, and they're going, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. And that actually led to an offshoot of some other research that we did that's not been published uh, in any like, journal, but except for the uh, Michigan Turfgrass Conference Proceedings. Hmm. And if you look through some of those, uh, you'll see some papers that, that I wrote uh, that look at the effect of insecticide on thatch accumulation. And that in itself is a whole other topic, but it's pretty interesting because where we put insecticide down, thatch accumulated, or we didn't put it down, you know, nitrogen got it to decay. Because thatch in itself has a very wide carbon to nitrogen ratio, mm -hmm. you know, something like 30 to 1, which is not conducive for any kind of decay to take place because it's limited by the amount of nitrogen. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you know, it was all kind of a um, an experiment for me mentally to see if we could push this system and just see if anything was going to happen. Because I wasn't sure that at the rates that they were talking about applying, 
that we were going to see anything yeah. uh, really occur. And, and in fact, I had plots where we just put lines down that material at a half a pound end per thousand and nothing happened. I mean, the grass got green. But when we started to take a hard look at the thatch that we harvested, we found that there was a just a plethora of earthworms where we had put all this organic material. Hmm. In essence, we were feeding earthworms. And, and when you talk about thatch decay, there's microbial decay that occurs for sure. But there's also a form of macro decay that occurs when uh, uh, insects and arthropods and earthworms and other soil uh, fauna you know, interact with that thatch and they burrow through it and they leave mucigel in it that stimulates bacteria and, you know, they chew on it and, and it kind of opened everybody's eyes a little bit, I think, you know, because we actually, and you see later in the paper, we have some figures that show how many earthworms <coughs> we found. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to talk about that because I, I showed a um, article, I don't know, two, last week sometime, I can't remember what it was, of, um, I don't even remember, it was some news article. And it was an environmental sort of slant to the article. And it was talking about how bad turf grass and fertilizers are for earthworms. And then, you know, we see earthworms everywhere in golf courses and lawns and, you know, the high populations and the point where we actually see damage from animals who are eating those earthworms, you know, like, for example, um, sure. javelinas and, you know, hogs and things like that. Yeah. Um, even moles and, you know, all sorts of little rodents and things that eat those earthworms. And so in this paper, there's one reason why I actually wanted to pull this paper and I didn't really, I didn't really clue you in on the, one of the, my, you know, background interest. And it was, it is the earthworm graph in this paper. Cause I just, <clears throat> I just talked about it a couple of days ago. And so I wanted to show it on this. Well, let, let's, Lee, let's talk about a little bit more of the detail of this, of this um, paper and explain to the audience exactly what you did. And I, I'd like to start with the, the objective, which is pretty straightforward. And it says this research was initiated to evaluate the status of the, ex of existing Kentucky bluegrass thatch after treatment with three bioorganic materials. Um, uh, you conducted it on Kentucky bluegrass at, in, in East Lansing, Michigan. So this was your PhD study or a master's study? No, this is a master's. Master's. Okay. It started in 1984. <clears throat> so you started the study in 1984. Uh, let's look just real quick here. The, some people are interested about the soil. So I, I like to talk about that briefly. Um, the soil had a pH, oh, wait, wait. It was a disturbed clay loam with a pH in water of eight and a CEC of nine. Uh, let's stick here. Yeah, so that's fine. Now the materials you talked about, I heard you say lawn restore. So there's three, the three materials are one's called lawn restore. One was called, I don't know if these are around anymore. One's called lawn RX and the other one is C50. And they consisted of various organic and inorganic constituents. Do you want to, have any greater description of, of it than that other than you have some topics in here about the yeast was the predominant nitrogen source. Is there anything else that we, the audience might need to know about the products? Well, you know, I can't remember exactly what they were composed of, but it was, uh, um, generally speaking, it was like, uh, not a chicken manure, but there was some chicken manure in it and there was basically anything they could grab that, 
tended to be organic. Okay. <clears throat> to to put in it, and <clears throat> they really didn't clue me in as to what the actual composition of the stuff was. Yeah, they they don't they like to tell it, everybody what's in it. Sometimes they want to keep and, it a trade secret. And they secret. had said that that they had a specific bacteria that they added to it, which made it bio organic. Okay. And you know, um, <clears throat> knowing what I know now, I probably should have screened it, figured out what that organism was. Yeah. But well, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When you're yeah. a master's student. <laughs> You don't think about those things. I had a friend when I was doing my master's, a, a colleague, a grad student colleague who was doing his PhD with the same professor. And I was having a particular rough day one day and he, he, he knew I was beat up and down. And and my professors want me to do something I didn't want to do. And I was just worn out and, and I'll leave everybody's name out of it. But he said, Travis, you're in grad school. You're in grad school. If your professor hands you a stick of dynamite, and tells you to hold on to it. You just hold on to it and look away and hope that fuse never lights the dynamite. In other words, yeah. you're in grad school. You just do it, get through it, you know, and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, you know, you just, you know, man up and work your way through it, you know, and you would have done things differently. I'm sure I would have done things differently, but you know, we, we get through it and you know, that's, that's the learning experience. It's particularly on a master's. A PhD doesn't quite have those same, uh, forgivings you know as much as a master student does but uh yeah. it's all it's all good but here's the rate you applied you applied to z- applied the products at zero two pounds four pounds and eight pounds an end now what i've told my audience before in the past is you can't always take the rates we do in science literature and say well they applied eight pounds of nitrogen or they applied 20 pounds of ai or whatever and so we should do that. no no oftentimes in research we are we are doing rates that are far outside of the range of of BMPs and normals because we're trying to figure out we have to hit a number within that range. In other words, we're we're going to back it down at some point and figure out what that sweet spot is. But we have to start sort of at a, at a a global scale if you want to talk a very large scale, and then so we yeah. make sure that everything's within that range. So I don't want people to walk away from these papers. Uh, and see this really high rate, you know, eight pounds in. Oh, well, you shouldn't have, no, you know, you have to understand the context of each paper. And, and oftentimes we're trying to work out rates. We're trying to figure out what is the appropriate rate. What rate would induce an effect? Well, if the rate is, let's say the rate is 205, for example. Well, if your high rate was only 195, you wouldn't have seen any effect because the, the rate necessary to see an effect was slightly higher than what would have been your highest rate. So the, right. to the audience, please don't walk away from this and say, oh, these guys are crazy, playing eight pounds. We do a lot of crazy stuff in, in turf grass science and all sorts of science. But, but by the time it gets to you in the form of a BMP, it's been refined down to a much more confident, confident level of what would result in a response and have minimal impact on the environment and so forth. So, well, sure, and that's that's what I was saying earlier. We want to try to make something happen. Yeah, and if you if you apply eight pounds of N four times in four months, I mean that's a lot of nitrogen going down. <laughs> you know, thirty two pounds of nitrogen going down. Yeah, and and is that reasonable? No, but again, from my point of view, I wanted to see if I could make something happen. Yeah. You know, the, gra- the grass didn't look great. It was kind of spindly. You know, it was overgrown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these, these materials were three and a half percent in. So, you know, there was a lot of the material went down. And yeah. when you look at organic matter in soil, 
uh, and especially thatch, you know, could have been due to the nitrogen being limited, but it could also have been due to a priming effect, hmm. which is addition of organic matter stimulates the decay of other organic matter. And that's pretty well known in soil, you know. Okay. Realms. But it also could be that there's a lot of those bacteria. And it could be that this was a food source for all these macro decomposers, the earthworms and the other, mm -hmm. you know, things that are in that thatch. And we actually, you know, when I did my PhD work with Dr. Vargas, we kind of looked at some of that stuff <clears throat> and, you know, was working with the black layer back mm -hmm. then too, <clears throat> which took precedence. So really didn't get a lot of data, but did get find some interesting things. And, uh, but yeah, you have to, sometimes you have to be willing to take a chance to make things happen. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, applied the products at those rates, and then you went and took samples. You took a cup cutter and took a sample of uh, per plot. You took uh, six cup cutters per plot, and that's how you were gonna. That's how the uh, con consisted of the turf, the thatch, and the soil. And you, you explained the process how you went about drying it and so forth. I'm gonna come back to these slides when you, or these figures when you mention it. Let me just get down here. Um, I just want to explain to people exactly how how you did it and you know and particularly when it comes to how you measured the thatch because i i discussed on my my thatch paper where we, I, we did these various uh correlations of how to how measuring thatch can differ or how thatch growth can differ based upon how you measured it i guess is the way it is and you measured it in a, in a way that i want to make sure everybody's clear on uh, i'll just briefly read through this verter and aerial stem tissue were cut off with shears very common discarded roots tissue and soil were removed by scraping with a knife very very common uh, remaining mass was considered the thatch for thickness measurement to obtain a measurement of uncompressed thickness each sample was measured with a vernier caliper at five equidistant points around the around the circumference now the method in which you did this measurement is the same method literally exact i don't think we did five i think we did four whatever it didn't make you know, didn't make a difference but the the instrument that you used to measure the thickness was the same instrument and the same method that we used to measure the thickness of zoysia grass thatch along with three or four other methods and this method was found to be the most precise and the most accurate in terms of measuring zoysia grass in this in the case of our paper measuring zoysia zoysia grass thatch change over time as opposed to only weighing it or only ashing it or whatever so the method in which dr brent did this is very um you should have a lot of confidence that whatever the the whatever he found is consistent with the method that we would recommend in in measure, many cases um not and I, I mentioned before it's not that the other methods are erroneous it's just there's a lot more variation in those other methods as opposed to simply measuring it as with, well i think with a lot the of the variation in, in any method is how you define what that thatch is, yeah. how close do you crop the clippings, mm -hmm. okay? And, and that's, that you know, you're eyeballing that. And when you start scraping the soil <clears throat> and roots and get up to the thatch layer, mm -hmm. that's a judgment call too. It is, yeah. You you have to make a judgment call. You do, you know. Um, the the alternative is is to do it something like say by mass and you weigh it. Well, you're going to have a lot of soil, regardless of the the amount of effort you put in to wash out the soil out of that thatch. You're going to have some soil in there, and that soil can create a tremendous amount of variation if you have uh, if you don't have the same exact person measuring it and washing it out the same exact way, right? Because a little well, yeah. bit of soil throws out the weight a lot compared to little to to the amount of thatch, right? 
So. We actually measured thatch bulk density in a couple different uh, papers. Okay. Um, that, uh, you know, where we would just take, after we measured that thing, we would weigh it because mm -hmm. we let it, we let it dry in an oven at 60 degrees C yeah. overnight and considered that good. It wasn't dried at 105 mm. like you would a soil, but we didn't want to oxidize, mm. you know, any more organic matter than we were going to oxidize. But although at 60 degrees C, there's still some organic matter that's being oxidized. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, so there, there, this, this was a, I don't want to say it's crude because it was effective, but this was a simplistic way of trying to get this data. And okay. over the years, developed other ways to get kind of the same data. <coughs> that's just, it's more laborious and more expensive. Than okay. Well, this next sentence is one reason why when I was reading this paper, I read it, I'm like, I don't understand where this is coming from. I want to maybe just call Lee. So the next sentence, I, I'm, it's probably right in front of me and I'm just missing it. But it says here, thatch treated with lawn restore. We're in the results now. Thatch treated with lawn restore, lawn RX, and C50 was reduced in thickness when compared to the untreated control, untreated thatch. Figure one. Now on the screen, for those, now there's going to be people listening that aren't watching this, Lee, but if you can do, uh, I'll just leave it out here. On the screen, I'm showing figure one. I, I, the top, there, there's two figures, there's two panels. One panel is earthworms on the y-axis and the count per square meter. And the one below it is thickness of thatch in millimeters per, I guess, cubic, or what is that? Uh, oh, oh, mil, uh, it's millimeters times 1,000, so I guess it's centimeters. Centimeters. Uh, and then the, and on the x-axis is kilograms in per hectare. So we can just switch that to th pounds per thousand square feet if you want to. So amount of nitrogen and then how, how, how does that affect earthworm population and thickness of thatch? And we have the line, it's a little line graphs for those that are listening. We have C50 and we have the, the treatments RX and then the, the RX I think was the lawn. Oh, it's lawn RX and then lawn restore. So on earthworms, Let's talk, let's talk about the top panel because it's the easiest one. It's the one that's kind of, I, I, for some reason, I like it. I don't know really why you bother counting earthworms, but I'm really glad you did because it's really not that easy to find simple graphs like this in the literature where it's just nitrogen and earthworm. But basically, for those listening, the more nitrogen you applied from zero in, say zero in with all the different treatments, we start between, say, 50 and 125 earthworms per square meter. And then we apply... Uh, two pounds a n, and one of the treatments didn't change much, but the other two went from around 125 or 100 earthworms to 250. So you two x or two and a half x the population of earthworms by applying two pounds a n. Okay, yep. so <laughs> so th this flies in the face of some of this um, information we talked about a couple a week ago, whatever. Where oh, our, the fertilizers are horrible for earthworms and lawns and turf grass are horrible for earthworms. It's going to kill earthworms. I, I don't see much evidence to support that, it's particularly within the realms and the boundaries of best management practices, if you're following those. And here well, you see the you see the big dashed line, though, right here. Yes, it goes up. Yes. Okay? And then it comes down. It comes down. Yes. Because that product had some ammonium sulfate in it. OK, so this one goes up to 250 and then it goes back down. It still stays yeah. at, at a, um, a magnitude it's at greater. Yeah. Okay, but what, I think I think and I, I don't know if that you, I, I basically said that 
the C50, you know, had some inorganic nitrogen in it, mm -hmm. probably irritated some of those worms. Yeah. At the end conclusions, you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. But it goes up and then comes back down. The other one goes up and stays up. And then the, uh, I guess it's the RX. It takes a little time, but then it goes up as well to as high as 300 earthworms per um, square, me uh, square meter at four pounds in. So the, the oh. application of these products, which are bioorganic materials that contain nitrogen, resulted in an increase in earthworm population. All of them. Yes. One, one of them dropped down a little bit, but they all resulted in greater earthworms than not applying them. So right. it, in this channel's Turkgrass epistemology, so how, whenever in the couple, weeks or, week or two ago, I was mentioning, well, this person's saying it'll destroy earthworms and kill earthworms. I'm not convinced because I see, you know, turfgrass management resulting in an increase in earthworm population. Well, how do I know? Well, I don't know for hundred percent sure, but this is why I'm convinced graphs like this. This is how, why I'm convinced that the proper management of, you know, turf grass will likely result in an increase in, in earthworm population, not a decrease in population. So like I said, this is epistemology. So I'm trying to, you know, show people when I see these things, this is partially why I'm convinced that this is the case. Okay. So yeah, that, in, a, in a home lawn, like a Kentucky bluegrass, that'd be a good thing. Yes. Yeah. No, it's putting green. <laughs> putting no. green no. <laughs> Sport no, turf. No, no. Uh, football fields, no, but, but but part of the part of what you learn from this is that when you have putting greens that you're managing and you're treating them with insecticides, that's a recipe to get thatch to increase. Okay, <clears throat> and that and not necessarily, you know, soil organic matter in the root zone, mm -hmm. but thatch. Okay. So the bottom panel is where I, I get, I'm confused here on this, Lee, because the bottom panel has the same treatments, the, the Lawn Restore, the Lawn RX, and the, the three biological treatments. And the, the thatch starts around three quarters of an inch to an inch thick at the beginning with no nitrogen. And as you apply more nitrogen, it drops to, say, half an inch or so, a little less than half an inch. It reduces it by about half. Let's just say in rough numbers, all three of them resulted in about a reduction of half the thickness, roughly speaking, as we keep going up in nitrogen. But I don't see the control on the on here somewhere. And it says it reduced it in thickness when compared to the untreated control. What Am I missing something here, Lee? Well, see, that's what being a master's student and writing a paper okay. is all about. Okay. It was just a just an error. <clears throat> that was just left out. Okay. That was just an error. No, no problem. I, I don't uh, fault anybody for typos or just miswording things. It, it is what it is. I've, I've told people before, you're writing articles. I I have not written one article that is flawless. Okay. Uh, there's always little things I would go back and change, and, and, and it's going to happen. Um, and then what I tell people is, this is, these are little errors or oversights that occur imagine the amount of errors and oversights that occur in literature that's not published <laughs> okay this is published it's been refereed it's been peer-reviewed and we've removed a lot of them and there's still some exist um but, when but you have to also remember that at the zero x-axis okay that's treated that's how thick that thatch was yeah and it was uh and it was uh um that's how, how, how it was. Yeah. I need to grab my uh, charger here. Yeah, no problem. Quick. Grab your charger. I'll, I'll, I'll keep the, the boat floating here. Um, he goes on and says, both material and nitrogen level contributed to differences and no interactive effects were, were detected. 
Okay, so uh, we continue. Trend analysis showed that thick thatch thickness decreased linearly in response to end level for for lawn restore in C50, while a quadratic response was observed for lawn RX. That was in the table. He showed the, quadri the quadratic and linear, and I think it was even cubic uh, statistical uh, regression. I don't know if it was a regression, but he, he showed how there was, a re there was a relationship there. It was not determined what actual actually affected the decrease in thatch thickness, though. In other words, was it the nitrogen? Was it the bugs in the jug that contained the nitrogen in it? There was no determination as to which one it was. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, Lee? it's, just, it's okay. the product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, thatch thickness. Study today, and, and we started this uh, with Dr. Vargas, where we started looking at specific bugs okay, and then insecticides and just nitrogen. And I'll, I'll send some of this stuff to you because it might be worth talking about. Sure. At some time. Um, you know, we saw a significant reduction uh, over two years with urea mm -hmm. uh, and IBDU. And <coughs> one of the experimentals that I made while I was at Michigan State called MSU PDC. And, uh, you know, so um, we, we started on some of that. It just didn't have enough hours in the day. I okay. You, you, you also measured something very similar to what other researchers have measured, and that's cellulose and lignin. You mentioned it here briefly, and I show it in figure two. I want to make sure we're clear on this because it, it might seem counterintuitive if you're not, uh, if you're, well, to me, it might seem counterintuitive. I've read through it, and I think I got my, my wits about me. But let me read this real quick. Thatch thickness was negatively correlated with lignin content and positively correlated with cellulose content. So in other words, as the thatch thickness went down, the lignin percentage was going up. And the, as the thatch thickness went down, the cellulose um, percentage was going down. And it says Correct. lignin accumulation likely reflected the loss of more easily degradable plant material. Supporting we now we've gone over this paper, Lee. I've, I've discussed this paper on my channel already, the sixty-seven Letterboer paper. So it, it supports their findings. They're suggesting that it, in the easily digestible carbohydrates or uh, compounds like cellulose that are more easily de uh, degraded or decomposed might decompose rapidly, leaving behind the products like lignin. And your results uh, showed very similar. You know, it supported that what was what has already been shown. So, um, yeah. okay. Um, I just didn't want people to think that, you know, because on the the graph up here, you're going to see you're seeing thickness go down. And over here, you're seeing, I don't know if I can get it on the paper, and you're seeing lignin, you're seeing lignin go up. But the reason for that is, is that the cellulose is going down. It's being degraded more rapidly, I guess. And that's the reason you're seeing the percentage by, by, well, by yeah, one. because in a, in a paper I wrote in 2014, mm -hmm. um, and I published with uh, Rock, Chris Wah, uh -huh. you know, we looked at, um, and, and I did this in 2008 as well. This is a paper I published in crop science. Both okay. these were, one was in crop science and one was agronomy journal. <coughs> but we actually put mineralization curves to batch. And, you know, we found that a double exponential model, which is something maybe most of your viewers don't understand, but uh, that actually described the, the mineralization of thatch quite well. Okay. And what we found when uh, we looked at <coughs> the influence on mineralization curves 
in response to additions of cellulase, which is an enzyme that degrades cellulose, we found that there were two distinct pools of thatch. And I think this reflects that very well Okay, uh, from 10 years earlier in that there's a fast pool and there's a slow pool. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the fast pool is that collection of labial, easily degradable organic matter that exists in the thatch as a composite. <clears throat> and, and we showed that adding cellulase enhanced the mineralization of that labial pool, that fast pool. Yes. But it, but it, it also made the slow pool, which is more lignaceous, appear quicker. Okay. Yeah. And that might seem counterintuitive, <clears throat> but all the, the easily degradable stuff got degraded mm -hmm. and left the stuff that isn't easily degradable to just remain. Yeah. Now there was some work at the University of Georgia with Paul Raymer and one of his students looking at lignase, <coughs> how successful that was. I don't remember. I think I have that in the queue. I think I'm not but, sure. You know, one of the things that, and I was just talking with Dr. Gaswan about this uh, the other day is that, you know, by this paper and then the other three papers that I've either authored or co-authored, <coughs> it sets the sites for having a mechanism by which to look at fast pool decay, slow pool decay, and put that into numbers that scientists will understand. Okay. Because yeah. mineralization curves can be affected and through regression modeling you can you can peel those parameters out yeah. and you can have a half-life on them and, and you'd have to read my paper to, to to go through and do that but the thing i would say and i noticed we're kind of running out of time here is that i've encouraged i've put these models out there and i don't think anybody has picked this up and i said to rock you know somebody needs to do this again with cool season grasses because it's elegantly simple and the one thing travis if if i had a uh, if i had a lab and i had a little bit of money what i would do is replicate those mineralization curves but i do it in a way using carbon 14 which is radioactive mm -hmm. it'd be elegantly simple to do that because you could label the thatch easily okay with carbon 14 and then instead of trying <coughs> to measure co2 coming off you trap the co2 and you count the radioactivity and it'd be highly precise yeah and you could do it for individual plant parts and and you know i i've mentioned that to a couple different people along the years like i was hoping somebody would pick it up or go hey lee why don't you do a postdoc for me for a year <laughs> you know, this is yeah. something I really like to do because this would just be there'd be three or four papers come out of it. Yeah. It'd be easy to do. And you know, it would really up the knowledge base about what thatch really is. Mm -hmm. And you know, the whole point of your channel here, uh turfgrass epistemology is all about knowledge. So Yeah, definitely. Maybe 
listening out there that if this kind of takes hold of. Uh, let's um, hope. Yeah. Get the information yeah. out there. There's a whole lot of work that I sit and have nightmares about. I was like, man, if I don't do that, no one's going to do that. You know, how do I get well, some? That's, <laughs> that's the same thing with me because, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty simple yeah. to label the plant with C14. Yeah. I mean, just all it takes is some, you know, a closed container and some white. Yeah. And some C14 glucose. And, uh, you know, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll have you back on and discuss a little bit more about the pools because it, this paper does it does show it doesn't really talk about the pools, but it does show them here. I mean, you're talking about a soluble. Let's just call it a. It's not right to say this, but let's say call it a soluble pool of thatch and an insoluble pool of thatch. That's horrible. I know you're going to have that's that's bugging you. I can t- I know it's not the right terminology, well, no, but that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So it cellulose pool. Yeah. You know because. If you read Gaswab Baron et al. 2013 mm-hmm. uh, in the characterization and nature of organic matter, yeah. you know, turf grass systems, you know, we talk about that uh, fact that, you know, the old definition of thatch is living in dead roots and rhizomes yeah. between, you know, the verdure and the soil. And it's way more complicated than that. And, and people that study thatch, I don't think, have a realization of all the different components, organic components that are contained within a thatch. And yeah. we go into, we go into detail about what's in it and then, you know, ways that people have measured it and stuff like that. Yeah. We actually have a quite a, a differing definition from what Beard and, and Madison back in the seventies proposed. Yeah. And that's fine. That's how we progress. You know, I mean that, you know, it, there's a sort of a, you got to start somewhere and then people build on it. Right. I mean, we come along and, you know, Einstein comes along and debunks everything before him in physics with the, with the, you know, the solar eclipse where he was proven correct and everybody else before him was wrong. Those, those yeah. things rarely happen in turf grass, but things of lesser magnitude happen. I mean, we come along, we find new information. If it doesn't make sense within our past model. So we have to adjust the model because this is the evidence we have to make. You know, we have to figure out, you know what you did is it true is it correct if it is we have to make adjustments and that that happens all the time that's that's but but see that's exactly what the point of all you know that figure that you're showing right there is is that Mm -hmm. there are two distinct well it doesn't say that they're distinct it just says there's two different pools yes and we don't use that term until like the later papers yeah uh but again you know forgive me for being a master's student (laughs) master's students they see a building, they walk into the wall and bounce yeah. off. Yeah. A PhD student is at least motivated enough to try to jump towards the building. Yeah. You know, a PhD jumps over the building and goes about his business. <laughs> well, at least so, you got yours in Hort Science. My master's work is in a little proceedings paper in Florida that's not even published anymore. So, you know, I don't even think you can even find my master's work. So. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I'm like, Hey, it is what it is. I'll, you know, I'll take it. But I, I do think as from a simple, from a practitioner's perspective, when you're trying to keep things simple and try to, you know, understand, well, you know, what do I got to do here? You know, well, just knowing that there's, ve- let's just say very likely maybe more than two, we may find out in the future, there's more than two pools of, of, of break soluble and insoluble carbon compounds and no that. Well, I, I, I'll tell you right now that there is. Okay. 
because it's a judgment call where you start to call off the two pools. There you go. I yeah. mean, it's not a line. You right? could, you know, because thatch is made of cellulose and hemicellulose and lignin, mm -hmm. but it's also made of simple sugars. Mm -hmm. Things that come off if you begin a decay. Yeah. Before you take air dried thatch, and now you wet it with a drop of water. In the first sixty seconds, there's CO two coming off. Those are the soluble sugars. Okay. And that lasts for maybe a day. And okay. then things begin to slow down because now those soluble components, simple sugars, more complex sugars, and 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 then then cellulose and hemicellulose and prelignin and lignin, and then you get then you get to the you know components that have half lives of two three thousand years. Hmm. So you know you, you, there's there's way more than two pools. Well, we've kind of established in the one paper, we, you know, that was for simplicity's sake, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very and, and um, um, doing this research at a community college where I worked, where I was doing this on my own time, that's just not something that is done. Yeah. Yeah. You did a lot of good work from there. Florida, yeah. but I can remember. Uh, one of the Bayer guys, and uh, his name is Jeff Michael, a good guy. I get to work for Envu now. Um, he, he made a comment to me one at lunch. He goes, you know, I just don't get it. I go, you're sitting in a community college doing basic research. He goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm doing what I like to do. <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect answer. If you do what you like to do, you don't ever go to work, you know. There's some where days you do what you have to do. Yeah. Some days you do what you like to do. Yeah. I'd rather just spend more days doing what I like. Quality of life. Yeah. Well, on the topic of different components of thatch, cellulose and hemicellulose and lignin, we have a question in the, in the chat. This question comes from the military base in Germany, comes from turf therapy. And he asks, is lignin typically found in the more fibrous portion of the plant? And cellulose is in the vegetative portion. Where's well, there's a certain amount of truth to that because leaves and clippings are going to be mostly cellulose. Okay. Okay. And as you get down into the more deep, more fibrous part of the thatch, you're probably going to find more lignin. But that's not to say that the fibrous part of a thatch doesn't contain cellulose and doesn't contain those soluble sugars. Clippings are almost all fast pool. Okay. They're going to degrade right away. Okay. Okay. And that's why you can return clippings <clears throat> to putting greens and you've got a standard three and a half percent and carrier, essentially. You don't do that because you don't want clippings, you know, laying for <coughs> two or three days. But if you took those same clippings and you put them, mix them up with some sand and what did that sand within a couple of days? That stuff is going to be gone. Mm -hmm. It's going to be some lignaceous components like xylem tissue and you know associated uh, water conducting nutrient conducting tissues are going to be more lignaceous. Okay, but the it's, bulk it's, of clippings is very fast pull broken down. Absolutely, and, and the bulk of the stems and the the nodes and all those things are more lignaceous and they are right. less, they take a long more time to break down, I guess. Now, a little bit off topic, but relevant to this, I'm currently working on measuring 
redox potential of what in a simulated usga putting green that i constructed it's sitting right here in my condo well for our audience that might not know you want to give a layman's explanation of what redox potential is you feel comfortable with that well yeah redox potential is a is basically you you could think of it and i don't want to be criticized for this but you could think of it as your your turf grass soil your putting green soil based on what it's composed of gives off a spontaneous voltage it's not that it's giving off energy but there are reductions occurring like for example an electron might be transferred to an iron atom producing a reduced iron atom okay mm-hmm. fe2 versus fe3 you can measure that using a platinum electrode and what redox potential is is the voltage difference between the um, platinum electrode and the reference electrode and that can be influenced by not only the elements that are in that soil <coughs> but if you look in a standard chemistry textbook you'll see a listing of reduction potentials for all the elements and what kind of spontaneous voltage that they they produce like for example lithium batteries are popular because lithium is right at the top of the heat okay there you get a lot of spontaneous voltage from the reduction of lithium that can be used for work that's why lithium batteries are in pacemakers and things like that because you can harness that work well the redox potential is also driven by sources of electrons and if you take for example turf grass clippings and you dry them and you sprinkle them in the soil those are going to decay extremely fast and what's happening is those clippings are being oxidized so oxidation is loss of electrons well those electrons are flowing somewhere okay and it probably is going to components like iron and manganese and zinc and whatever else that soil is composed of and it's not as simple as i'm making it but one of the things that i'm going to be doing here shortly and I'm just getting my system set up is to take clippings from the local golf course here on their Tiff Eagle. And I'm going to be sprinkling them in that soil as a source of electrons and see how much that drives down the redox potential. Because what you like to have is a high redox status where there's a lot of oxygen available to the plants so that the microbes and the plants can harness that oxygen and do respiration. I, Lee, I, I mentioned this briefly before we actually came on air, is that um, I get lost in some of your articles <laughs> because <laughs> your intelligence is like way over my head. And I, and plus, I'm from Oklahoma, so you gotta you gotta remember that. But if if I can rephrase what you said to the to my level of knowledge, is is the redox potential of the soil kind of give the the observer an idea as to whether or not the soil will reduce an element or oxidize the element? Kind of gives you an idea of the status. Well, yeah, because if you go back to the black layer work, 
Mm-hmm. Black layer is physically composed of highly reduced sulfides. Okay. Okay. And what you need to do in order to prevent black layer from forming is you fertilize with nitrate. And a nitrate molecule has like at least three oxygen atoms attached to it. Yeah. And so that's an oxidizer. Tells you right on the bottle, this is an oxidizer. You know, they use ammonium nitrate to blow up the Oklahoma City building, you know, yes. next to diesel fuel and, you know, such a powerful oxidizer. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to do that, but we want to, and I've actually published a couple of different papers looking at the effect of nitrate on redox status and how nitrate can help prevent the black layer. Okay. From okay. But it goes back to looking at the clippings as a fast pool, easily degradable, a lot of electrons there as that stuff begins to oxidize. And what I'm hoping to show is that clippings and other treatments are going to depress the redox potential. Okay. All right. Interesting. You know, be able to measure it because redox potential is a is a vital indicator of the environment that the plant is going to grow in. And it's something the superintendents really don't know much about, but it impacts everything that they do. Yes. Like, for example, if you irrigate, you know, you're uh, you're manipulating the redox status because you put water in the soil. There's not as much oxygen diffusion. Oxygen is depleted. Things tend to be reduced and maybe black layer forms. And and. You know, if you put, and what I, one of the things I always like to tell my students when I had students was that, that their job as a superintendent is to manipulate the environment so as to allow the turf grass plants to express themselves to the best of their genetic potential. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a and good way of putting it. That kind of always makes people go, wow. But everything you do on a golf course, you add pesticides. Pesticides are usually based on organic molecules. Mm-hmm. Okay, those are going to oxidize. It has an effect on redox, or potentially, anyway. Sure. You put you put fertilizer down. If you put malorganite down, that's all natural sewage sludge. It's all organic matter that becomes an oxygen sink. You put elemental sulfur down, that becomes an oxygen sink. And I, I actually wrote a paper about that. Back in the nine, uh, yeah, in the '80s, I guess, '80s, '90s, whenever it was, um, and one of the reviewers said, because uh, you know it was how elemental sulfur influences redox potential in a turf grass soil, and we showed that the oxidation of sulfur, which is required for sulfur to work, is actually an oxygen sink, and it's robbing the soil of oxygen. And depressing the redox potential. And one of the reviewers said, we've known this forever, but we've never seen a paper that said this. <laughs> well, they, hey. they accepted the paper. Well, on that note, another question from, oh, by the way, the person who asked the previous question, you're talking about oxidizers. He actually works for the U.S. military, and he is an explosive disposal exp- expert technician. So he does that for a living. He knows all about explosives, and <laughs> and he does oh, that cool. for a living. He, yeah, he's my he's my hero for 2023. I was on his uh, show almost several months ago. And you so, know, when I was first at Edison College, uh, I had a, an adjunct working for me who was a captain in the military. Okay, and he was going to go over to Germany, hmm. and, and he had plans for 
couple months from now. And there was actually some back and forth about me going over to consult on one of the golf courses there at Ramstein. No. Oh. And I just said, I'll do it for free if you fly me in, in like an F-22. <laughs> no. <laughs> just not so. Yeah, for, for the for the musicians, this this has nothing to do with you, Lee. For the musicians who are interested in some of the music I play at the end, um, Rammstein is uh, may, may be on the menu at some time, point in the future. That's the, that's yeah. the city that you talked about, but it's also a German band that is uh, extremely good at what they do. All right, let's yeah. <laughs> let's wrap this thing up um, with the last paragraph. And I, and I, and there's a couple. Was there another question? Yeah, there was. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, there was on Redox. It says, "Wouldn't uh, this comes from Eric?" It says, um, "Wouldn't temperature have a significant impact as well? For example, high temperatures can compel an electron to let go. So, temperature influence on Redox potentially." Oh yeah, that's part of the Nernst equation. Mm -hmm. Temperature is critical. Yeah, temperature pretty much influences everything, Eric. So uh, I am not a redox specialist, but for sure, um, you know, the you know, the warmer temperatures. I would. I don't know the literature, Lee. Maybe you do, but I would. I'm assuming that warmer temperatures would result in a greater uh, oxidation potential, wouldn't it? I mean, you have more opportunity well, for electrons to move. Sure, because it, you know, up to a point. Yeah. There's a point where temperature becomes limiting. Okay. Yeah. So I would say yes. The answer is yes. If it's frozen and you're in uh, northern Alaska, then <laughs> it's going to be a different than it would be in South Florida, I would think. Yeah. It'd be tough to take a redox measurement in frozen soil. Yeah. <laughs> so the last paragraph, um, it says the assumption, it, it's a little bit, I, I want to ask you about this paragraph. The assumption yeah. that earthworm activity together with the effects of nitrogen and microbe decomposers influence thatch equilibrium in our study appears to be reasonable. Now I read that, I'm like, well, I'm not sure if I follow that. And then you follow it up with this sentence and it says, this assumption, however, was not experimentally proven since no attempt was made in the study to separate possible thatch effectors. Now I'm gonna interpret this and then you tell me where I'm wrong. Basically what I'm understanding, Lee, is that you applied these products, you did see a reduction in thatch, uh, as we noted in figure, one from around let's just let's just say an inch down and it reduced uh, after applying eight pounds of nitrogen four times from these products or yes um you reduced it by about a ha about half that so it went from one inch to about a half an inch and you see incremental steps as the nitrogen slowly increased you see that that's decreased as well um, but from what i'm understanding you couldn't really say it was from the actual microbes in or the microbial component of the product or from the nitrogen itself creating some other effect that resulted in a reduction in thatch. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, it was due to the product. The product did it, but we don't know if it was from the in or from something else that was in the product that may have been, you know, microbially mediated. Right. Is, okay. All right. So we, we, we didn't, you didn't confirm that it was this in the product. It was just the product. So I guess it's just the product. The yeah. product. So I guess if you had a similar form of nitrogen and you applied it, it could have been a, seen as, as a control. If you would have seen a similar response just from that without the microbes, that might have been yeah. a way of, of pulling that out. But, but then what we did though was subsequently to that, you know, we looked at we looked at lawn restore in a in a an experiment in uh, 1988 and 1989 and this was with and without uh insecticide as chlordane and we looked at urea and we looked at ibdu and we looked at lawn restore 
and a couple other uh, products that had been, you know, come along the pike at about that time. And the, you know, the thing is, is that there was a significant difference just with urea. I mean, uh, when we just applied urea uh, and we applied urea with insecticide, you know, we had, uh, we had a major difference in thatch thickness uh, two years running. Oh, okay. So, you know, the, and, and we thought that was, that was pretty significant in that sure. urea applied, and I forget what the rate is, uh, it's actually one pound a end per thousand square feet monthly. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, with IBDU, the same thing. And that goes back to the fact that the CN ratio, the carbon nitrogen ratio of thatch is very wide and there's not enough nitrogen. And if you go back and you read Beard, in 1973, he says the same thing. So again, let me just understand what you're saying. You're saying that, I mean, obviously the CDN ratio is quite high in thatch and you're saying simply by providing a little nitrogen with none of the microbes involved, let's just say in th theoretically, if you applied nitrogen without the microbes involved, well, not even theoretically, you're saying you did that and you saw a reduction simply because you're, you're providing nitrogen in a, in a, in a, in an environment that has a high C to N, therefore lowering the C to N ratio and then encouraging decomposition. Is that what I'm seeing, hearing? Yeah, because nitrogen is limiting. Okay. So with okay. that, with that, I mean, no, this is your master's work and whatever. We're, we're going to be moving in. We're, there's other uh, studies that have been published from Clemson and from, from, published from you and so forth where we looked further. They, you all have looked further into the microbial breakdown products. And you, you know the market probably better than I do, Lee. There is a plethora of, I, I almost want to call them homeopathic thatch, you know, products. And we can leave all the names out of it. But you know what, you know there's all these products out there. It, some of the research does show some potential influences if it contains certain enzymes or if it contains a certain sure. type of sugar. There's, you know, there, we're going to get into some papers from Clemson where there seems to be some effect. I don't know if it's really biologically significant, but there is a statistically significant reduction in thatch when some products are applied, you know, beyond the CDN ratio, I guess is the way to say it. They're adding sugars or adding carbon, you know? So that's what I was, yeah. I was, I was saying. Again, yes, that might, that go, might just go back to a priming effect. A priming effect. Yeah. So I, I may have to have you come back on and explain to me because I said yesterday uh, that I, I don't understand thatch. I'm not a thatch. And th the last week I'm saying I'm going to get through thatch as fast as I can so I can make as few errors as possible because I'm not a thatch person. Okay. But it just seems like in some locations, Adding nitrogen will, will be all you need. In other locations, it might not be. In some locations, adding cellulase might show a positive effect. In some locations, it won't be. In some locations, this this some types of sugars will have a re show a reduction. In other locations, they won't. So it just doesn't seem to be, you know, like a, like I mentioned yesterday, a nitrogen paper for the most part. Tiff Dwarf in South Florida, you say your nitrogen rates are X. You can kind of make it make sense if you move to North Florida or if you move to Hawaii. You know, you can. It, it's in the realm of the range that you might find from a, 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 a calibration you did in South Florida. But with thatch, it doesn't seem to me. And I, correct me where I'm wrong. I'm not a specialist in thatch, but it doesn't seem to me that you can always just take one paper and kind of relate it to somewhere else because it just seems like there's variation well, in every paper. You can't because there's experimental error. There's an experimental technique. 
Well, you know, there's that as well, but like even the environment doesn't doesn't like the environment to me. It's like let's let's say you did um, let's say you did 419 in Fort Myers there, and I did 419 in, in Oklahoma City, and we had the exact same level of thatch and the exact same setting, except for well nothing. Everything's the exact same except for the two locations and the temperatures. I, I, I'm not convinced that what would work in Fort Myers would. I wouldn't have a lot of confidence that it would also work in Oklahoma City. You know, I just, well, I don't I, know. I think, that's, I think that's very astute. And, uh, you know, one of my uh, ex-professors um, that I had that I took a couple different classes from uh, was a soil microbiologist, probably one of the most eminent guys in the field hmm. at Michigan State there. And he always said, and, and I always taught my students this, Everything is everywhere, and the environment selects. And I firmly believe that to be accurate, well, <clears throat> up to 99%. Okay? Yeah. So if you're in Oklahoma, and you got 419, and you're in Fort Myers, and you got 419, those are two totally different environments. So, you know, uh, to be similar, I think you're, you know, I think I'm frozen here. Yeah, well, you came back. You're okay. back. Well, right. we're well, gonna we're gonna close it down. Any, we're gonna close it anyway. I just, I guess, I don't want to be wrong when I when I say, um, you know, I'm just thatch. The influence of products, particularly products on thatch, can't really. I can't really have a lot of confidence in saying that it's it's going to work if you do this because they found it in Clemson and I'm in, you know you know, Louisiana or I'm in Southern California. I just, I just don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in it, but I don't want to be wrong about that. Right. So that's, I guess that's my take on it. I, I just, I'm not sure what to think about thatch and what to recommend or not recommend when it comes to that, when to products that will reduce thatch. I'm just not, I don't see consistency in the literature enough to the point where I can say, yep, this is really a good BMP to follow to, to reduce yeah. thatch, but maybe well, I'm wrong. You know, one of the things that um, this paper that we just talked about enabled the Ringer Corporation to do was put a little sticker on their bag that says reduces thatch. No. It's, it's all about kind of corporate advertising. Oh, okay. So. Well, I'll get into that sometime too. Well, Lee, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything left that you wanted to wrap up before we go? No, I think I've talked enough here. <laughs> No, you're good. I I really appreciate it. I, I I've said before is like I I think I'm good at what I'm good at, but I I I'm definitely not good at a lot of things, and thatch is one of them. So rather than kind of meander through your paper and get it wrong, you know, I I, I was able to get you on. I'm glad I'm glad you're able to come on and kind of help guide me through it. There's a couple of things on there that you definitely helped kind of straighten me up on, and I feel a little bit more confident on speaking about that if I need to, or at least having some ballpark idea. I only have two last questions that I tend to ask everybody. Are you ready for them? They're really easy. Sure. Uh, what kind of turf grass do you have in your own home lawn? <laughs> Stuff that just got sprayed with Roundup. It's all dead. Okay. If I were to ask uh, your peers the following question, what do you think they would say? The question is, what is Dr. Lee Barrett best known for in turf grass science? What do you think your peers would say? Black layer, probably. Okay. Dr. Lee Barrett, 
I really appreciate your time. Everybody else, thank you for coming. I'll be back on, what's today, Tuesday? I'll be back on tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern time. We'll continue our discussion and our papers on thatch and thatch management. Everybody else, okay. Lee, thank you so much. Well, I hope you invite me back. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're, you're welcome back whenever. Don't don't hang up, Lee. Like I said, hang, hang, hang tight. I'm going to close this thing out, and um, I'll be right back to you, Lee, for everybody else. Thank you all. I'll be um, back on tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you.